Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Julia Jarko about her book, Writing and the Modern Stage, Theater Beyond Drama. Julia, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of your intellectual artistic evolution and kind of how you came to theater studies? Sure. Um, I have been a playwright for a long time since I was, you know, I really started doing that in high school um, and kind of always knew that that was the thing that I would do, you know, that I um, that I loved writing, that I loved kind of making performance pieces. Um, and I also have always really loved you know, reading. And um, in school, I studied literature in college. And I was sort of like, all right, I'm done with that time to be an artist. Um, Come to find out that, you know, you you need to make a living too. And I sort of, you know, while I was being a playwright as a young person, I kind of tried a couple different kinds of jobs. And I became increasingly aware that there was this possibility that you could um, go get a PhD and they would actually pay you to like read and write about what you were reading. Um, so I did that. I, I applied to a few places and I ended up going to uh, the rhetoric program at UC Berkeley. Um, and I didn't even know for sure that I wanted to write about theater. I mean, I, I sort of said that I did because that was what made the most sense in terms of what I could show I had already done, which was basically make theater. But, um, you know, but I kind of, I took different kinds of classes. I basically, you know, um, was mostly interested in kind of critical theory. Um, and it was really only started working uh, on my exams and towards my dissertation that I realized that I had uh, that the sort of question that I most urgently cared about thinking about was a question about theater and about kind of the role of writing in theater, in the theater that I cared about. Um, mm-hmm. And so then that sort of became the basis of the dissertation that then became this book. And it also became sort of the start of my um, kind of serious critical writing practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this sort of received wisdom from like, I guess, sort of the 60s avant-garde generation that like writing is sort of embarrassing (laughs) and boring. And like the real, the real exciting stuff is like, you know, director's theater or, 
you know, devised theater or, or some other thing than a playwright writing a play and then that play being staged. Um, but, you know, I think you make a, a very convincing case that some of the most exciting stuff going on in theater in the past 50 years and even before is, is coming out of, you know, plays, right? Um, do you feel like that was kind of a gap in the scholarship that you kind of wanted to fill? I mean, I think so. I mean, look, there's, you know, obviously people write, have written right, a lot right. about a lot of plays. Um, and there is this whole sort of um, body of critical work on drama um, that is kind of text focused. But I think, you know, as I was sort of starting to learn in grad school what contemporary theater studies is, um, you know, the, the model that seemed the most powerful, I mean, uh, I was in grad school in sort of the late aughts, let's say, is when this was happening, and um, was this idea of post-dramatic theater, mm -hmm. which is, you know, this, um, as you know, this, uh, this German theorist, Hans Thies Lehmann, kind of runs with this term, but uh, in, in, in a European context. But, you know, um, but basically, as you were saying, you know, this idea that um, Western theater, whatever that means, used to be um, this kind of strapped down thing dominated by text. Um, then fortunately, everybody finally realized that there was all this other stuff going on besides words. Um, and so like really leaned into that. And that's, and that's where you get sort of all that is vital uh, about contemporary theater, you know, not, not only today, but sort of since the seventies. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm hyperbolizing that argument right, right. and certainly Lehmann, he's actually very smart about text and, you know, about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but the truth is that, yeah, you know, the, the, there were things about the sort of ways that I saw people talking about and thinking about experimental theater that felt really compelling and true to me of the work that I had sort of grown up in New York loving. Um, but there, it did feel to me like there was this whole kind of missing piece, which was like, what about, um, the things people do in writing? You know, I, I think, um, I think growing up in New York and, and, you know, kind of fortuitously getting access to the sort of kinds of experimental theater that I ended up um, seeing and caring about as a really young person. I, um, you know, I, I was drawn to work that was really adventurous at the level of the language. Um, and that was a thing that it seemed to me hadn't quite been accounted for in spite of all the theorizing about performance that you know had had taken place over the past few decades. And that was sort of what I wanted to think about. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you mentioned your interest in theory and the kind of the big theorist uh, that kind of hangs over the book is Adorno. Um, could you talk about the kind of the specific version of Adorno that you're kind of pulling from and, and how his work helps you think about theater? Teddy, yeah, um, Adorno. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that the version of Adorno that I'm pulling from is like the grumpy Adorno. Um, <laughs> I think- The Adorno who hates jazz. The Adorno, I mean, the Adorno who, who not only hates jazz, but I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's got bigger problems, but the, you know, but the Adorno who like doesn't give a shit about performance actually, you yeah. know, who, who actually says to understand what music is, you can't get too hung up on live performance. You have to look at the score of music. I mean, who thinks that, <laughs> um, you know, and of course he says the same thing about, about 
plays about theater, um, which is in a way I think less shocking. Um, but but he's you know he's a thinker who um, is always. I mean, this is what the phrase negative dialectic means. Dialectics means in practice, right? Is that you're only ever thinking um, by way of what you're refusing, right, or what you're complicating. Everything always is um, by every statement that you can make is you can sort of only arrive at it by um, negating or complicating the thing you had just said. Um, and, and that kind of like determination to not say the thing it seems like you should say, but in fact, say the opposite, um, you know, which, which again is like a methodological principle in that work, um, that was just thrilling to me and felt theatrical to me, that idea of the sort of perpetual project of reversal, you know, happening at the conceptual level rather than let's say the dramatic level. But that's, you know, that I think to me was the thing that, that I loved so much. And then, and then that it felt like that to say like, hey, what if we actually say no? Like, what if the text really is in charge in some plays? You know, what if, what if we actually, instead of like constantly continuing to remind ourselves that, that theater is not just language, um, which is something that we all know, but sort of seem to keep needing to reassert. Like, what if we just sort of perversely were like, hey, what if it were? You know, what if language really were uh, able to dominate an entire four-dimensional, socially distributed, institutional situation? Like, that would be wild. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's Adorno as a sort of like way into a counterintuitive way of thinking about theater um, that I think really excited me. There's, yeah, I, I'd like to dive a little bit further into that. I, I've read, you know, far less Adorno than you have, uh, but this idea of kind of the, the negative and, and the sort of negative utopia too is something you write about, that like the idea that the, the true utopian gesture is just a sort of complete rejection of whatever currently exists, but without specifying anything about the, the content of what you're proposing. Um, I, I don't understand why that would be desirable. Like that seems like a very, um, I don't know, uh, intentionally confusing way to do politics maybe. So what is, what is exciting about that idea to you? And, and also to bring it back to theater, how does that, how do you see that kind of utopian the sort of very pessimistic version maybe of, of utopia playing out in, in theater? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, one answer to the question is you might have to have a certain kind of disposition um, in <laughs> sure. order to, you know, get turned on by this version of utopia because it's, you know, it is a sort of, um, it, it withholds and it refuses um, and it destroys. And I think, um, you know, the question of whether this version of utopia can be good politics, I mean, no, I don't think, I don't think it can. Like, I think um, politics is dependent on, you know, you always have to have the, the sort of positive moment, even if it's provisional, you know, you have to, um, I mean, this is something that one person who I think writes really um, helpfully about this actually is Lee Edelman. Um, even though he's not kind of explicitly very much in dialogue with Adorno. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I think Adorno's version of utopia is one that um, that negates and negates and subtracts and refuses. And that's not a way you build a coalition. That's not a way that you build a society um, or, or sort of offer a platform. So, um, so it's not a politics yet. 
Um, but I think it is uh, a moment of a politics, which then always needs to be supplemented by something else. Um, and as to sort of why you would, why one would kind of rest content with it as a kind of um, valuable mode in itself, I mean, I don't know. I guess I think that, um, that there would be different ways of answering that. Like you could think about, you know, kind of a desire to nurture your own tolerance for the negative, your kind of patience, or like what John Keats calls negative capability. Um, this idea that, you know, it might behoove us actually to try to occupy an imaginative space that isn't filled with things that solicit and comfort us. Um, so there's something like that, uh, I think, in the appeal of this negative utopia. Um, but, but frankly, I also think there's a, a kind of excitement for me in this idea um, of just like a really intense rigor, um, like a, a willingness and a desire to do away with anything the moment it seems um, false. Like that, that kind of um, ferocity seems to me like a pretty exciting use of cognitive power. Um, and then the question about theater, I mean, I think one reason why I was excited to think about um, this kind of theory, uh, Adorno's work in relation to theater is that I think a thing that I love about theater is its um, susceptibility to, you know, upset to being completely redirected um, to having what it has been in a moment um, fall apart in the next moment. I mean, that seems to me sort of constitutive of what theater is and why we go to it, the sense of a kind of radical possibility. Um, I think we usually describe that as a positive possibility, like look what can happen, you know, mm -hmm. look what can come together. Um, but I think often we actually experience it, or I do, as a sort of um, potential for falling apart. Um, and certainly in making theater, you're constantly aware of the potential um, for disaster, basically. Yeah. Um, and so and so for me to sort of think in a true way about what it means to, to talk about a time-based art, um, you know, this, this notion of a kind of um, perpetual disruption uh, felt really um, applicable. Mm -hmm. um, this is a very big question, but this is a book that's engaged with very big questions. Um, there, I feel like there's a, a kind of um, lack of consensus in contemporary theater studies about like what theatricality is. Like there was the theatricality is presence thing, but it seems like that's kind of given way to theatricality of, uh, is like disappearance or ephemerality, but you don't seem to really be on board with either of those. Do you have a, a sort of theory of what theatricality is or, or you know, relatedly what theater is? Um, what is theatricality? What is theater? No, it's good. I don't, I'll just it. say, I have no idea. I, I, I have no idea how I would answer that question, but. I mean, look, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I, do, I don't think I, no, I, I can't say like, here's what it is. Um, here's my, uh, no, I, I, but, but, you know, but as a, so I guess I think as an artist, you know, I'm, I'm sort of always trying to come up with a new answer to what theater is, what it's for, what it can feel like, what the super special thing it is that it can be or do. Mm -hmm. As a, as a critic or a scholar, I think I just tend to be mostly interested in kind of like figuring out what 
other writers and thinkers have imagined theater and theatricality um, could be or it could do. So, you know, that's a little bit of a cop-out. And obviously there are some answers to that question that excite me more than others. But, um, you know, I think in this book, um, and maybe in general, the kind of accounts of of theater or theatricality that that tend to kind of um, excite me the most and kind of become most productive for my own thinking are um, have to do with, um, you know, with uh, tensions or problems that arise between sort of different categories of experience that theater brings into collision. So, mm. um, you know, in this book, in the chapter on Henry James and Gertrude Stein, for instance, sort of thinking about, you know, what are the ways that I think for James and for Stein, theater, it's sort of the whole point of theater is the way that it kind of mobilizes space and time um, against kind of linear meaning uh, or or even the kind of coherence of the event. Um, you know, in, in, in other ways, in thinking about other writers, it might have more to do with, um, you know, what are the ways in which uh, and, and I think actually kind of always, I guess I'm thinking about theater as something that brings language, that brings text into a kind of um, conflictual relationship with, um, with other things, with things that are in text. I mean, I think if I had to say like, what's the most fundamental thing about theater for me, it certainly has to do with that. It's like mm-hmm. the way that on the one hand you have language, on the way, on the other hand, you have stuff that's not language. Um, and, and what happens when those things um, have to try to become something together? You know, what's the chaos that results? Yeah. And one of the things that's really exciting about the book is that you kind of use that account of what theatricality is to look at like non-theatrical texts. Like you look at Henry James' Beast in the Jungle. Um, what's, what's theatrical about Henry James, not as a playwright, but as, as a novelist? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to do with that sense of collision or, or negativity or sort of um, complicating that that I was just talking about. I mean, um, you know, so for me, um, what is what is most thrilling about reading Henry James, um, and I guess especially you know the later the later fiction of Henry James, um, and this is something that that you know, that a lot of people have written about, particularly in relation to sort of um, queer theory, uh, is the way that Henry James um, manages to construct sentences and also stories in which the sort of, um, in which things don't happen. Um, Mm -hmm. That there's this like incredible, he, he uses language to construct this like beautiful, elaborate web of resistance to narrative event. Um, You know, people, uh, even kind of the level of dialogue, people say things to each other without actually saying things to each other. Um, Whatever it is that would actually happen is sort of always held in some kind of um, unrealized state. And, uh, and I think, you know, for me, there's something about the way that, you know, there's this sort of, as a reader, um, you, you, uh, you know, we're kind of rushing towards meaning, we're rushing towards story, we want to know what's going to happen. 
And James just sort of uses, um, uses writing, basically uses all the things you can do with a sentence um, to kind of stop us in our tracks, to slow us down, um, to prevent that kind of um, complete completion from happening. And that to me feels really related to um, the way that the space of theater and the duration of theater and the sort of varied embodiment, not only of performers, but of audience members in theater are actually always interfering in whatever event it is that we think we're there for. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me thinking about James's actual writing, like what is happening in those sentences um, became a way to think about kind of like, first of all, what is happening when we watch the, something in a theater? Um, and then like, what, you know, how does that experience, that sort of phenomenological experience um, get transposed into a medium that isn't performance, but is, mm -hmm. but is text. Something that, because I'm also a playwright, and something that kind of bothers me about how people talk about playwriting is when they use the term storytelling interchangeably with the term playwriting, as if those were the exact same discipline, um, when, you know, obviously I think that there are are big differences between telling a story and writing a play. And um, Gertrude Stein actually said anything that was not a story could be a play. Um, could you explain a little bit about kind of what she meant by that and why that idea of anything that was not a story could be a play is interesting to you in the context of your book? Yeah, um, I know, I, I love that she says that. Um, and I, I think basically, you know, she says that in her, in her lecture on plays where she's, um, where she's sort of describing how she came to playwriting, how she came to writing for theater. Um, and yeah, I think when she says she realized, you know, it was like a, a, a key moment for her when she realized that anything that is not a story can be a play. Um, I think when she says that she means she's, a story is like the things that our minds are most of the time doing, right? Like we're walking around, we're confronted with all of um, this sensory information and we um, form it into stories. And we, you know, in particular, I think like we have to um, relate to all these other human beings. Um, and the way that we do that is we um, come up with stories about them and then they tell us more stories about themselves and we tell each other stories about each other. And um, so stories, I think for Stein are like sort of, it's like the easy thing you can do with your brain. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like the way you can make meaning, it's the way you can make significance, it's the way you can, um, we like make each other care about things. And that's just completely banal, because that's, you know, that's like the bread and butter of, of the everyday. And I think, you know, she's basically um, wondering about uh, an alternative way of um, a, a sort of uh, a really um, intentional practice of experiencing the world stripped of that um, impetus to sort of quickly and cheaply make meaning. Um, and, and so I think what it means for her is like an encounter phenomena um, that resists their ability to organize themselves into a uh, little use meaning. So that what we're faced with, either just as people perceiving the world or as people making art or ultimately as people consuming art, um, is, is like a real complexity um, and a real kind of system um, of pattern and echo and kind of infinite difference 
um, and, and, and what that does to our brain, you know, to um, experience the world that way, as opposed to in little um, digestible units of meaning. That's, I think, the alternative to stories. And that's what she decides theater um, can be. I don't think she ever decides that it's like the best or the only way to make your brain do that. But she starts to feel that it is uh, a good way. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and is that what she means by comparing her plays to landscape that you know a landscape painting doesn't have a story it often doesn't have you know specific figures or characters is, is that is that the significance of that term landscape for her um i think it it is um i do think it's important i don't think she's really fundamentally thinking about painted landscapes though i think mm. she's um uh, I think she's thinking about actual landscape. I mean, she comes up with this idea when she's living in the French countryside and sort of presumably like staring out um, at the land a lot and watching the birds. Um, so, I mean, one thing about that is the landscape is always in motion a little bit, right? The birds are moving, um, the wind is moving in the leaves. So her landscapes, you know, people talk a lot about her writing being static. I'm not so sure that it's about stasis, but it is about learning to attend to um, movement uh, that isn't dramatically meaningful um, and that may be really repetitive um, or maybe really small. Um, but I think, I think the faculty, yeah, of sort of trying to see what's around you, what's in front of you, without subordinating it to the kind of organization that we usually have to apply um, to the stimuli can move through the world. Um, that's something you can do when you're just sitting in a landscape, um, I guess. It's been a while, <laughs> but that's possible anyway. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard that term for years and I never knew quite what it was referring to. So thank you very much for uh, clearing that up. Um, another play you write about is Waiting for Godot, which certainly, um, you know, has been written about a great deal, maybe more than any other play of the 20th century. Um, but you describe Waiting for Godot as utopian, um, which definitely surprised me to read. And I, I imagine will surprise many of our listeners. What do you mean by, I mean, I guess you, you've discussed a bit about Adorno's idea of utopia. So I, I, I suspect that's kind of what you're drawing in here, but what do you mean by saying that that play is utopian? Yeah, yeah I, was, I was just wondering earlier today what I had meant by that. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, basically uh, I, what I say in this book is that what I think Beckett is up to in that play um, is, you know, as I was talking about before, right? You have 
text, you have language, and then you have um, the present, right? The present moment of performance, which is a, a space and a time and an assemblage of people. Um, I think that I think that for Beckett, that theatrical present, right? Just like the you know us all sitting here right now in this specific place watching this thing. I think that he's interested in the way that that can stand in for um, just kind of the the givenness of reality like um, the real world, uh, the present in a sort of slightly expanded sense, right? Like the world as it exists in the present and as Mm -hmm. we really live in it. Um, And I think that for him, theater, um, and and this is, you know, this is a kind of version of, I guess, the claim that I'm making for most of the writers that I talk about in this book. Um, But I think he does it the most starkly. Um, Theater is the place where that presentness, right, that kind of like here we are right now at this moment in history in this specific place in this society um, gets confronted with writing, right, writing as this kind of medium, this agency almost that is able to um, try to uh, invoke or evoke um, or promise Uh, not where we are right now, but kind of some other reality that we, that we don't find ourselves in, right? So um, writing as a kind of reference to all of the realities or any of the realities that might be possible, um, rather than the one that is like literally instantiated as we sit here in the theater right now. Um, And so I think, you know, the thing that Beckett is doing that's kind of amazing is he's like in this place so determined to um, to kind of bring those two things as close together as possible. So he's kind of trying to find all the ways in which writing, like his playwriting can limit itself to only being about what is happening right here, right now. I mean, it's still fiction, there's still characters, mm-hmm. um, but basically the, the drama of it, right? The invention of it, it's as if he's, kind of um, sitting there trying to limit himself to only inventing, only imagining um, the theatrical situation itself and being as kind of um, cheap with himself, as stringent as possible. And the question there is like, okay, if writing only has the present to work on, right? If we imagine that, you know, if we sort of strip ourselves of any fantasy, of any sort of elaborate fiction, of any you know, construction of hopeful possibility. And sort of all we do is like rub our own face in what's right in front of us. Um, Is there a possibility that just by virtue of the fact that we are able to take that on in writing, that just that sort of, um, you know, that, that revelation of our freedom to do that Um, Will that be enough to make us ultimately feel something like hope, something like, you know, a possibility that the thing that we can't have yet um, could happen later, could be possible or could be sort of worth holding out some kind of um, desire for? I think that's what is happening in Waiting for Goto. It's like it's saying, you know, you can't have it, you can't have it, you can't have it until at some point... um, the sort of exhilaration of that refusal um, turns into this strained sense that a f- must be able to have it. And that's what I mean when I say that I think the play is utopian. 
Great, yeah. I feel like the hope in that play is like the most uh, excruciating part. Like the the couple of leaves that appear on the on the tree after the act break. It's like no, there is yeah. change. Like if there's a little bit of change, then maybe there's a big change, possibly around the corner, and then it's oh, unbearable for me. Yeah, it's no, it's really heartbreaking. Um, skipping forward a bit, you write a bit about well, quite quite a bit about um, how contemporary theater groups have used kind of non-play texts to make performances, uh, especially in ways that kind of really um, make explicit the, the, the textiness, the like literariness and even the like uh, materiality of the books that they're drawing from. Like you read about Big Dance Theater, Elevator Repair Service, Nature Theater of Oklahoma. What do you feel like the stakes of that are for this sort of um, questions about what writing does in theater? Like what is writing that's not for theater do in theater? Um, I mean, well, right. I mean, one thing it does, you know, this is not super interesting to say, but is mm. that it, um, it sort of keeps, it keeps, um, basically keeps authorhood kind of firmly in the hands of the, um, of the artists who are making the performance, right? So like, um, it, the whole idea of a found text um, is one that basically sort of preserves the sense of originality, right? right? So if a theater company stages a novel, then they are making something. Whereas, you know, strangely, if that same company stages a play, um, you know, the, the degree of their authorship, I never can decide whether to say authorship or authorhood. What do you say? Oh, I, I guess authorship. I don't have a strong feeling about it one way or another, though. I have to decide. Anyway, authorship... <laughs> um, you know, it, it kind of comes into question um, when you are doing with a text the thing that the text tells you to do, right? Yeah. So I think one thing about non-theatrical texts is it sort of um, preserves this this uh, this kind of unshared authority. Um, but that's, yeah, but that's kind of banal maybe. I mean, I think- I don't know that you know, that is banal. Know. That feels very interesting to me, the idea that like, you know, if in, in a production like Gats, where they read every single word of The Great Gatsby or perform every single word of The Great Gatsby, that in a way is like enshrining the theater company or the director or, or whoever as the author in a way that if they just did a play, it, it wouldn't. That seems like a very counterintuitive notion to me. And, and, and it also sort of makes me wonder is like, is that why it's called Gats rather than The Great Gatsby? Because it's saying, we're not doing The Great Gatsby. We're reading every word of The Great Gatsby, but this is not The Great Gatsby. This is our thing, which is called Gats. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, of course it is. And it's not, it's not like, um, it's not like just a trick. I mean, they really are doing this incredible thing. They're doing this um, incredible kind of um, labor of endurance and, you know, ingenuity. Mm -hmm. um, because of course, a novel is not written to be performed. And in order to, um, keep it aloft in a performance space, you have to do all kinds of other things that, um, you know, the truth is you have to do those things when you put on a play also. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, there's a way that I think um, the, you know, the other thing is that um, a play is a piece of writing that is designed to kind of, I mean, you know, whatever, there's a million different kinds of plays, but I think, fundamentally, you know, the idea we have of what a play is, is that it's a, a piece of writing that is designed to kind of slip over the theatrical moment, like a slip cover on a couch, right? Mm -hmm. It's like it settles right in. 
ideally. Um, and obviously any other kind of writing that's used, um, presented, played with in the context of theatrical performance, um, it's not a slipcover, it's like a weird, I don't know, it's, it's like a weird pillow um, <laughs> that has to keep getting tossed around because it obviously doesn't um, fit, it doesn't um, match the circumstances. And so, you know, one thing that happens then is you, you get to experience the, um, the materiality of the language of that thing um, pretty directly the whole time because nobody is naturalizing. There's no, um, there's no illusion that it belongs to the space that you're in. It's a, it's a foreign object the whole time. And as such, you kind of get to enjoy it and experience it as text in a way that we're not, we don't always have to do. Maybe even we usually don't have to do when we watch a play. Yeah. So in kind of following along that same line of like drawing attention to the text itself and kind of reveling in the pleasure of, of text as text, do you feel like that, is also what Mac Wellman and Susan Laurie Parks are doing. Like, is there a sense in which the language, the extravagance of their language is a way to kind of like draw our attention to the language in a way that's maybe analogous to the way that like a Brechtian staging of a play draws our attention to, you know, the lighting rig or the sound cues or, or something like that. Is, is it sort of a, a, an alienation device in that way? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I do think that. I mean, I, I actually would say that, you know, thinking about experiences that I had had watching some of Mac Wellman's plays um, was a big part of sort of figuring out what I wanted this book to be. Um, trying to figure out how could one do justice to this experience um, that I had had that I know so many other people have had <clears throat> of sitting sitting in a theater and watching something and feeling that what you are watching is a piece of writing and knowing that that's paradoxical, you know, that you're not watching a piece of writing, but somehow feeling that you're um, experiencing. And, it, and it's also different from, I mean, it's different from the kinds of work we were just talking about also, because there, you know, you're experiencing the, the writtenness, the textness of the writing, um, but, you know, but that is always kind of, um, there's, there's a gesture, a kind of presentational gesture that uh, encloses that within the kind of larger structure of, let's say, the company's intention, right? Um, like, here's, here's the Great Gatsby, we're going to do this thing with it. Um, whereas, you know, the, the thing I, I was kind of most curious about, like in Mac Wellman's work or in Susan Laurie Parks's work, um, is the way that somehow because it is a play, because the writing itself includes the gesture that says, put this on stage, do this. Um, it's possible to also sustain a kind of fantasy, not only that you're experiencing writing, but that somehow the performance that you're experiencing is itself an effect of writing like as if everything you're seeing has been written um, rather than staged, as if writing has sort of taken on this world building superpower. And that was kind mm -hmm. of the effect that I wanted to be able to think about. This is another like somewhat counterintuitive claim, I feel like, because in a lot of 
you, you write extensively about Susan Lawyer Parks, especially her early work. And her early work is like famously very sparse in terms of any stage directions or suggestions about the set or costuming or anything like that. So how do you feel like that fits into this idea of, because I agree, I mean, I've seen, I've, I've seen productions of Death of the Last Black Man and I feel like it, you do get the sense that it's all coming out of the language. And yet when you read that play, all that's there pretty much is the dialogue. Yeah, well, I think that's, I mean, I, I think that is how she does it. I mean, I think it takes uh, an enormous amount of kind of um, imaginative courage uh, as a playwright to say, no, the entire world of this piece is in these lines. And mm -hmm. I actually don't need to add anything to it. Um, and I think that's what she does. I mean, I think she, the sort of wager is that you can build, you know, not just a poem, not just a song, but actually a world, like a real performance world, um, just in uh, these words that you say people are going to say. And, and I, I think that's what happens. Um, so, so in fact, like her early refusal of stage directions, in a way is almost like it's a great example of this thing that I'm that I'm trying to talk about, which is precisely this fantasy that a writer could make an event out of writing. I think that's, I think that's why there are no stage directions in her plays. Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me of the like Shakespeare thing of like always announcing where you are at the beginning of the scene so that you don't have to have any set, right? It's like, we're in the forest of Ardennes and it's like, okay, great, you're in the forest, right? Right. Um, I'd love to talk about Mac Wellman a bit too. You've, you've mentioned him a little bit already. Um, and one of the things you mentioned in the book, but, but kind of purposely bracket off is the question of like why his work has been so uh, influential for now, like several different generations of playwrights and directors. I mean, if you just look at the, the playwrights who've graduated from his MFA program at Brooklyn College, uh, it's, it's yeah. an incredible list. Um, but I'd love to kind of ask you that question, if I may, like, what do you feel like so many people have found in his work that has been so inspiring for their own work? I think, um, I mean, I think a lot of it, I mean, I think freedom, I think um, he's, he's so committed to, um, to freedom. I mean, that sounds kind of cheesy to say, but, but you know, the notion that um, there really are no limits to what um, a piece of writing can or should try to do. Um, that's a pretty amazing license to be given. Um, and then the question of how you can be true to that freedom. I mean, that's, I think, you know, that's where, um, that's where study comes in. And that's why people want, I think, to go ha ha have wanted or wanted for such a long time to go and study with him. Um, because, you know, there was this, this promise that he would, um, make you more free as a writer. Um, I think, you know, I think that's part of it, you know, the sense that um, that, that that could be an absolute end in itself. Um, mm. And then I think, uh, I think too, there's a certain kind of um, devilishness. I think that in his work and in his teaching, um, in his plays, also in the other things he's written, you know, his essays, um, there's a real spirit of mischief. Um, and I think, you know, so much of the discourse that we create and find ourselves beholden to um, 
in theater, probably in all the arts, but somehow theater, you know, theater is so earnest. Um, mm -hmm. Like we're so serious. Uh, and um, and they're just the sort of um, the pressure to be good, um, the pressure to claim to be aligned with and coming out of that which is good and sort of good for the people, um, good for the community. Um, somehow, you know, you're never far from that pressure. And certainly, you know, anytime you're writing a grant, anytime you're sort of asking for permission to make the thing you want to make, which, which we have to do constantly as artists, um, you know, you're sort of forced into this posture of, um, of goodness, of correctness. Mm -hmm. And I think that Mac, uh, Mac's work really kind of, um, it, it evidences uh, the exhilaration of um, not, not making yourself be good as an yeah. artist, um, allowing yourself to be wicked. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important and really appealing. And when you say good, I feel like there's kind of multiple meanings of that, like both good in the sense of like good for you, but also good in the sense of like kind of, you know, well-made play. Um, I, I think I may be misremembering this, but doesn't Mac Wellman sometimes do an exercise where he has students like write the worst idea for a play that they can think of? Yeah, I mean, I which I, I also have been known to do with students. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, I just think as an artist, like, what are you, if you already know what you're doing, then what are you doing? You should probably stop. There's probably something else that needs to get done around the house or something, right? The only, <laughs> the only good reason to make something is if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and, and yeah, and I think Max pedagogy and I think his practice as a writer really supports that not knowing. Um, finally, I'd love to kind of ask how, this book has like influenced your own writing and your own teaching. I mean, you, you teach in the MFA uh, playwriting program at Brown. Um, how does this academic research influence how you teach playwriting and how does it influence how you approach your own writing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't think, you know, it's not like I read a bunch and think a bunch and then I like go back and make adjustments to mm -hmm. my plays or to my teaching based on what I've figured out. I think, you know, at some level, like my curiosity when I'm doing this kind of critical writing, like, I guess it must be about like my own work, um, but it's not, you know, I like I was just saying, I always want my own work to kind of be um, kind of foraging out way ahead of what I've figured out or what I'm thinking through critically at any given moment. Um, but in terms of teaching, you know, uh, I think basically I just really believe that um, as, as, as a writer, as an artist, you, you just need, um, you need a really rich uh, and variegated uh, kind of assortment of things to stimulate you and provoke you. Um, and uh, and I think that um, a lot of what is the most terrifying and depressing and crushing about being a writer um, has to do with this sort of sense uh, of me, of feeling like you are supposed to be the absolute originator of mm -hmm. a thing. I mean, that's exciting, but it's also, you know, really hard. And so kind of uh, helping students uh, equip themselves, furnish themselves with, 
um, a bunch of funny objects basically that they can bounce off as they're working out their own projects. I mean, that I think is a really big part of, um, of what a good teacher does. So, you know, there's some way then that like, um, as I'm reading, as I'm thinking, a lot of it is, is a kind of gathering, like you're, I'm finding, you know, passages, texts, ideas, questions that I want to bring back to the writers that I'm working with, not because I think it will um, teach them what to do, or sort of like show them um, what needs to happen with their projects, but because I think it can sort of keep them aloft, it can keep them on their toes, it can sort of turn our discussion of their work into a more aerated, um, uh, sparkly space. And so that, I mean, that's, you know, that's not a super specific answer to like how this work, uh, influences that work. But I think, you know, part of the answer is it doesn't directly, but then also I think it feeds it. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and it was such a pleasure to read your wonderful book. Thanks so much for having me. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.